was 1971. We were but a twinkle <laughs> in our parents' eyes. <laughs> if that. If that at all. And when they wanted to go see a movie, they had a couple of choices. Yeah. The Abominable Dr. Fives. And, well, actually, I think A New Leaf came out a little bit earlier. But within a couple of months of each other, Whoa. they had a, a couple of interesting choices at the movie theater. Yeah, both of these movies, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> very 1971. Although, Fibes apparently takes place in the 1920s. Yeah. Although, I, I feel like they are not, you know, really purists when it comes to historical accuracy yeah i didn't uh i didn't really keep track of all of that it felt very 70s oh yeah no especially <laughs> joseph cotton's um home slash doctor's office but yeah 1971 what what was going on in 1971 i uh, unlike the the main character in a new leaf i'm not a history major <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm not sure how to, um... I, I didn't know that it was that easy to become a professor right? if you're a rich history major. Well, I married Sonia, and then she got me a job where she works, so... It tracks, it tracks. But yeah, I feel like in 1971, love was real intense but life was cheap yeah oh yeah i think it's interesting how both of these movies cross over into the opposite genre oh totally yeah. i i felt like fives <laughs> was one of the most beautiful romances i've ever seen yeah fives was like a a romantic based horror movie with a lot of comedy in it and a new leaf had a lot of like horror type elements to it. It it did. It definitely did. So why don't we get into it? Let's start the show. Let's do it. I'm Shira. I'm a rom-com fan. I'm Brett. I'm a horror fan. Every week, I pick a rom-com. Brett picks a horror. We make each other watch those movies. And then we like to do a little something different. We come back to each other with those movies remixed. We turn that rom-com into a horror. We turn that horror into a rom-com. And personally, it is fabulous because... Fibes deserves to be a romantic hero. Right. He's just oh god. I Oh, Fibes. <laughs> this this movie. Oh my god. So tell me, I'm now I'm really curious, when did you first see The Abominable Dr. Fibes? Oh, good question. Uh I lived in Chicago for a few years, and in Chicago there was like a company or pro- like there was a group 
that would put together horror festivals. So sometimes they'd put together a festival that was like three movies. You're like, okay, I'll go watch a couple of movies in a row back to back. That's an easy commitment. But some of their festivals were 24 hours long. Every Halloween, they would do a 24 hour long horror festival. And so I can't remember exactly when I saw this and during which kind of festival, if it was like a shorter festival, a mid-length festival, or the 24-hour one. But um, I saw it in a theater full of horror fans that were applauding basically throughout the entire movie. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah, this movie is like a giant cult hit for any like deep-cut horror fans. Yeah, um, I did. Uh, I patronized our our still existing local video store um, for this one as well, and they had put vibes under horror classics. Oh yeah, uh, any I would say basically anything with Vincent Price. Oh my god, is kind Vincent of Price and Vincent Price, uh, a movie that I've mentioned previously on our Love Bites, Laura, Vincent Price is in that oh, movie. I've been meaning to watch that since you recommended it, but... Oh, it's fun. Um, your wife, Sonia, she's seen the movie, too. I think I think she's a fan, or maybe she's more of a fan of Vincent Price in general. He's just such a... Vincent Price is such a cool guy. Yeah. We went to Arizona, and we went to... Um, what's that town in Arizona? Tombstone. And there's like a diorama thing where you go and you sit in this like rickety old theater and there's a diorama that tells you about the history of uh, Tombstone and it's all little models on this like spinning wheel and it's, you know, certain parts light up. It's very, very, very old and rickety and cheap. quaint and and cute. Yeah, very quaint. But um, the biggest reason why she wanted to do that was because Vincent Price did the narration. It was like the last thing he did before he died. Really? So do they still have him narrating yeah, all the Yeah, they've still got exam- the old Vincent Price narration. That's beautiful. It's very nice. Yeah, even even coming out of an audio jack into a phonograph, <laughs> Vincent Price has has a really amazing voice. <laughs> Oh, it's lovely. And they give him some really great, like, little soliloquies in this movie. Oh, yeah. I actually wrote one of his lines down. Okay. Um, so we, we can we can get into it through the, the summary. But I just got to say, this might be one of my favorite movies that you've picked. I, I loved it. I, I thought that it was hilarious. I felt like it was bizarre which i think are two of one of my my big qualities in a movie that i look for hilarious and bizarre um but yeah it was wild i feel like everyone should see this movie uh or maybe okay it's not a it's not a movie for everyone i feel like that's saying too much both of these movies are kind of hard to recommend but if if you really know your audience and you're and you know the niche the niche or niche for for this movie like I also don't know which is the correct niche niche if you know the niche niche for this uh, for this movie then yeah like that's one of those movies where you can you can really sell it to the to the hardcore fans because yeah no I think. Yeah, I think there's definitely an audience out there for a new leaf. I my reasons for picking a new leaf more had to do with the fact that I'd never seen an Elaine May movie. 
And then also, A New Leaf is one of those movies where, I don't know what audiences thought of it, but critics fucking loved it. Like, Roger Ebert and, like, people like that and and people who consider themselves, like, film people seem to gravitate towards that movie. And Elaine May, she used to be in a comedy duo with Mike Nichols the guy who directed The Graduate. Mm -hmm. So it's like she's got sort of the comedic pedigree, and then also she and Mike Nichols went on to direct, you know, several films that went on to be successful or considered classics. Um, But I don't understand I don't know if Elaine May directed any successful movies. I did a little bit of research on her. Seemed like a lot of her movies bombed. I mean, maybe they bombed in the box office, but they definitely yeah. come up in lists and get oh, talked yeah. about. Um, like, I wouldn't be surprised to see, like, an Elaine May retrospective at the Austin Film Society. Right. Like, I feel like, Nar- Lar- I almost said Nars Lielsen. Um, I feel like that type is, like, the ideal audience for that movie. Right. Yeah, I was a little surprised when I looked up the movie afterwards how much of a good reception it got like not that i thought the movie was bad but it like it, it you're right a lot of critics really seem to like this movie and i kind of kind of just assumed that it was because of um elaine may's name and, and reputation uh, at the name time recognition yeah. you know it's possible all right so what movie should we get into first um it, it's up to you what do you think why don't we get into fives? Yeah. I I feel like, okay, I do have to qualify this and say that this movie defies summarization. Yes. <laughs> I summarized this movie, but it, it there's so many things happening in this movie, scene to scene, it's impossible to truly summarize. I, you'd be here all day. As you I could summarize you the, this movie probably in like four sentences. Oh, but I don't but want to. But it wouldn't to. do it justice. I don't like. want to. And I didn't. You're going to get the full the full treatment. Um, but I still had to leave things out in order to like yeah. have the summary be a summary rather than a, a play-by-play. But yeah, a, a lot I, f- I feel like summarizing this movie is probably like the um, Key and Peele sketch where they do uh, Gremlins 2. Did you ever see that? Oh, yeah. I would love <laughs> I would love to have been in the meeting right? with the writers and Vincent Price when they pitched this movie. Or so, If you haven't seen this movie and you're listening to this summary, there's probably several moments when Shira is summarizing it where you're going, there's no way. Oh yeah, There's way. No way. Yeah, way. And the and the no way starts from the very beginning <laughs> yeah. when we open with a a slow zoom across this ballroom where at the organ there's a cloaked figure who's just shredding on that organ. Uh and you also see that outside of or on the stage with the organ is an automaton band. Right. Uh, like inflatable doll automatons. 
Yeah, I think that they were actual people with yeah. masks, but we were meant to assume that Dr. Fibes, in addition to being a professor slash organist slash theologian, is also a slash mechanic slash engineer. Yes. Um, and he made the band which are called Dr. Fibes Clockwork Wizards. We don't he doesn't tell us that they're called that. It's on the drum set, but yeah. but still, they're there. And so after shredding on that organ, he winds up the clockwork wizards. A woman appears. It's Dr. Fibes assistant Volnavia. They waltz briefly and then a covered bird cage lowers into the room and Dr. Fibes takes it. They leave the house and they leave the house in a town car where in the back of the town car, instead of it being a window, there is a drawing of the side yeah. of Dr. Fibes' head, which tinting your windows too dark is illegal in Texas. I don't know about the legality of having a drawing of your face on the side of the car instead of a window, but something tells me it's not quite street legal. Uh, so they, they drive to the first victim's house and they empty the cage into his bedroom. Turns out the cave was full of bats. They're really cute fruit bat bats though. No. So, well, no. They're deadly vampire bats. They're, they're deadly vampire <laughs> bats, but but the um, the animal handlers for this movie chose fruit bats, and I, I thought they were yeah. really cute. <laughs> uh, so the 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 vampire bats kill the doctor. That's the first victim, and then Doctor Fibes returns back to his crazy ballroom laboratory, where he puts a necklace over a wax bust that matches the victim, and then he blowtorches the statue's face off. By the way, there's like a horn that plays every time he does this, mm -hmm. and I, I, I loved that incidental music, by the way. Um, so then Fibes kills his next victim, Dr. Hargreaves, at a costume party oh, yeah. with a frog mask that chokes him to death. And like the last victim, he puts a necklace over a wax bust and then torches the statue's face off. Now, the third victim, Dr. Longstreet, who we got to talk about that scene, um, but he drains the third victim, Dr. Longstreet, of his blood. Meanwhile, the police have no leads on the killer, but they get a break when Fibes accidentally leaves the corresponding victim necklace at the crime scene. Oops. Uh, they also figure out that all the victims are doctors who have worked under Dr. Vesalius, played by Joseph Cotton. Meanwhile, Fibes and Volnavia perform music and dance numbers. Ugh, I loved it. Yeah. You know, you know I first... can't you know I can't resist a music and dance number. The first 30 minutes of this movie is just killing and dancing. And when I saw how much dance cuz I forgot how much dancing was involved in the movie, I was like, "Oh yeah, she was going to eat this up." Oh, you know <laughs> I did. You know I was all about the dancing. And mind you, like up until the first victim dies, 
there is zero dialogue in this movie. Yeah. Which is another thing that I really loved is that, like, they don't bother to explain anything to you. No. They're just like, there's a guy out there wearing a PVC cape and running around killing doctors. For, in fact, for the for the first 30 minutes of the movie, there's really no real clues or inclinations oh. or anything oh, as to what's going no. on. Oh, no. You have no idea. Like, I, I call him Dr. Fives because that's who's doing all of this. But we don't even hear the name Fives until, like, the, he's killed, the like, three so, yeah. people, three or four people. Um, so, yeah, they're performing those music numbers and Fibes uses an audio jack connected to a phonograph to talk to a photo of his dead wife. And then the police figure out that one, the killer is basing his crimes off the 10 plagues of Egypt. Two, all the doctors worked on the same case, Fibes' dead wife, Victoria, who died under their care. And, and C, that Fibes thought to be dead from a horrific car crash might not be dead. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And then Fibes traps the fourth victim, Dr. Hedgepath, by having Volnavia pretend that their car has broken down mm. on the side of the road. So the doctor's car stops. The police later find him frozen to death in, a, in the back of the car. Via a curse of hail. Uh, the police also discover at this point that Fibes and his wife's coffins are totally empty. We also learn that Fibes has a degree in music and theology explaining his knowledge of the plagues. Except anybody who's ever celebrated Passover knows about the plagues of Egypt. So like his only qualification was either being Jewish or a theologian? Well, even if you're Christian, Christians know about it too. Right. Because I didn't understand why his his specialization in theology is what gave him this idea other than just being somebody in Judeo Christian society. I think it it is more to hammer the point that he's a maniac who's obsessed with it rather than just like Oh, he only knows about it because of his advanced uh, research on the subject. But it's more like his devotion to to the plagues comes from his... Also, I would think that if he were a professor or, or that he, he, you know, had a degree in theology, that he would think that it's problematic to perform the plagues for revenge when the plagues were originally punishment against the Egypt for keeping slaves like what's a thousand or a billion however many jewish slaves there were versus one woman who dies under a doctor's care well she was very important to him <laughs> <laughs> oh oh victoria oh, yeah. was very important <laughs> very very important and so while they're figuring out the plague thing, um, back in his ballroom laboratory shrine, Fibes says my favorite thing to his wife through his phonograph device. He says, 
we shall, this is after he says a bunch of other things. It is a soliloquy, like you're saying. He says, we shall be reunited forever in a secluded corner of the great Elysian field of the beautiful beyond. And and I, I didn't really nail that, but... You know, Vincent Price nails it beautifully. He makes me believe that this is something he would say. And it's an incredible performance because not only does he nail the the stilted sort of dialogue coming out of the, right. the phonograph, but he kind of also nails that, like, painful, remorseful look on his face where he's unable to move his mouth, and it's just like his lower jowls kind of... Right. Undulating and... He he did do that. Like I, I neglected to mention that um also Dr. Fives, anytime we've seen his face, he's wearing a heavy prosthetic mask. It's it looks meant to resemble his heavily makeup. Yeah, it's actually, it's Vincent Price in a lot of makeup, but we're supposed to believe that Dr. Fibes, who's been horrifically disfigured by a car crash that should have ended his life, is now walking around in a mask that resembles his face, kind of like that guy from Boardwalk Empire. Oh, yeah. I I think if they did it like that now, it would be awesome and creepy. But back then, they were just like, ah, we'll just put makeup on Vincent and <laughs> call yeah, it a why, day. Yeah, why cover that up? But to to play the role, though, whenever he talks, he doesn't move his mouth. His voice just comes out of the phonograph. But Vincent Price still moves his jaw. So it's like he's talking, but you can't hear any sounds coming out unless he's using his, his throat jack. Um... <laughs> Oh, boy. So then Fives and Volnavia kill the fifth victim, Dr. Kataj, by filling his airplane with rats that eat him after he takes off and cause him to crash. And then the police again fail to catch Fives. They really suck at their jobs. Mm -hmm. Like, they really suck all throughout the movie. Uh, And then Fives and Volnavia share another musical dance sequence with a painted backdrop of Monte Carlo. I thought that was brilliant. Um, The doctors are now trying to protect the remaining doctors, so they go to Dr. Whitcomb's club to to protect him, but as soon as they open the doors to leave, the head of a brass unicorn launches at the doctor and stabs him, pinning him to the wall. Yes, the head of a unicorn catapults into the room and stabs a doctor through the wall. I just want to make sure that that's clear. This was one of the most crowd-pleasing moments I've ever seen in any movie, ever. Oh, this crowd of one was very pleased. It was, because not only does the unicorn impale this man to the wall... It flies at him. But then they have to uncorkscrew the head from the wall, and you see the legs being, like... Yeah, that's right. They have to turn they because the unicorn horn is a spiral, they had to turn the entire thing around to unscrew it. It's and so you see from from a different perspective, you see like the legs of the man sort of like right. going in a corkscrew motion and it's it's oh, it's just glorious. It, it really, it really, that one is my favorite kill. Yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, and again, like, it, it's not just like, oh, it falls on him. 
it launches at him. There's out of nowhere. There's centrifugal force behind this this brass unicorn head. Uh, and then next we see Fibes preparing a mysterious green goo solution from a shit ton of Brussels sprouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Volnavia silently watches before she breaks the fourth wall and looks at the audience. I don't, I don't understand that moment, but this movie is filled with so many crazy things. It's like, why, why not? Right. Um, so Fibes next victim is a nurse. So the police lock down the hospital, but that Fibes is a sneaky, sneaky boy. Uh, because he still gets in disguised as an orderly. Fibes then goes to the room above Nurse Allen's bedroom, lays down a map of a woman's body <laughs> where Nurse Allen should supposedly be laying down, uh, and then he drills a hole through the floor slash the nurse's ceiling, pours the green goo concoction over her, and then fills the room with locusts. Yep. So when the police find her later, she is just bones. The locusts have eaten her up. I don't know about the science b- behind Brussels sprout goo and locusts, but I assume it tracks. Oh, yeah. It's got to. Locusts will eat anything. Oh, really? I think so. Interesting. So Fibes back at the ballroom slash laboratory slash wife shrine. It, I really had no idea what to call that space. It, right. it, it had layer. a it had a multi it, it is a layer that that's that's probably would have been the accurate word uh so dr vesalius um oh wait oh yeah he dials dr vesalius tells him that he has his son death of the firstborn boom it was so great when they're like hey doctor aren't you worried about the death of the firstborn he's like no my older brother is already dead yeah no shit guy like Clearly, he met your silly little son, yeah, your and then, dorky son who likes organ music. The police detective is like, wait a minute, what about your son? And they go ballistic. It's, that was amazing. It's a great moment of just like pure campy cheesiness. <laughs> it's the kind of thing where I did actually imagine like how Sonia would have reacted to that scene. Um, but but yeah, no, the police on top of all of their incompetence don't even put two and two together that the next victim is going to be Dr. Vesalius's son. And it's like, yeah, of course it is. Um, so Dr. Vesalius comes to the ballroom and he and Fives face off. Fibes has designed a saw-like punishment for Dr. Vesalius. The doctor must surgically remove a key from inside of his son's body and use it to unlock his restraints before acid pours on the son from above in the same amount of time it took the doctors to operate on Fibes' wife. Six minutes. Acid. Acid is probably a very 70s thing you know like you don't see acid being used as a weapon in horror movies or, or that's anything true i feel like acid was definitely having its moment from like the 40s to the 70s because yeah. i think in um touch of evil there's an acid attack in right. the movie too maybe like that was like in the 70s and the 60s if you were like a violent protester throwing acid in someone's face was kind of like the 
coup de gras, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, it doesn't really pop up that much anymore. I don't I don't know why. Yeah, maybe they maybe they managed to control the acid black market enough that we can't just go throwing acid in people's faces anymore. But who knows? Who knows? But yeah, the the acid definitely a, a 1971 punishment. Um then Fibes also orders Volnavia to destroy everything while the police arrive on the scene. And his words are really funny. He's like, all right, my job here is done. Destroy everything I've created. And Volnavia, who never complains, um, just just like, okay. Well, she doesn't speak, so she didn't say okay. Uh, and then Fibes also taunts the doctor while he's operating on his son and removes his prosthetic face to reveal his disfigured real face before leaving the room. He kind of looks like the Phantom of the Opera, but like if his entire face was phantomed. Um, and then Vesalius, he succeeds in rescuing his silly little son, just as the police corner Volnavia in the same spot the acid falls down, she screams and presumably dies. I'm not sure. Um, and then Fibes puts his prosthetic face back on, walks to an opening in the floor where his embalmed wife is laid out, lays down next to her. He then puts a needle in his arm and we see that blood is being taken out of him while embalming fluid is pumped in. The lid lowers over them automatically and merges with the floor, just as the police and Vesalius come down, and now they're standing over Fibes' hidden grave. They don't know where he is. We get roll credits to Somewhere Over the Rainbow. (laughs) Of all the songs to end on, we end on Over the Rainbow. Oh my god. God, this movie! Oh, I, I don't even like. Again, it like I said, it defies summarization. That was the longest summary I think I've done since The Hitcher. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't even all of it. And it all fits in an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. You would think that with the amount of things that happened in this movie, that it would be like two hours long, two hours and ten minutes long. But no, it's just like an hour and forty minutes. It's just going from the very beginning. Yeah, it moves. Uh, a lot of the death scenes are very matter of factly, um, and there's I don't know. There's just a lot of dancing and killing. That's really what the movie is. Yeah, it is a lot of dancing and killing. And and again, like, there's really, like, the thing I think I liked the most about Fives is they don't try to explain anything. Like, we learn oh, that, yeah. that, that it's doctors and, and Fives and he wants revenge and all that, but nobody explains the dance sequences there's no, nobody explains where Volnavia gets those ridiculous hats that mm-hmm. she wears in the movie. Like, his assistant wears a series of fur hats, and then in the end of the movie, she wears a hat, like a pink hat with a bunch of, like, long needles sticking out of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, you, you never learn. The one thing that was the biggest mystery to me is 
how Volnavia fits in all of this. So yeah. the doctor's wife dies. He conceives his plot for revenge. And his trusty assistant helps him through the whole thing. And then she's also his female dance partner through right. all the musical sequences. But we never learn her motivation for helping the doctor. Yeah, I was looking it up. I don't know if it was on IMDb or Wikipedia. But um, I think the original plan was to make her another automaton. Oh, so she's really just a robot? She's just a robot, which is why we probably never see her acid face. Because it, oh, because it was, it was probably to meant to reveal that... like a, a oh, that would have been Terminator so cool. endoskeleton. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Terminator skeleton. That's interesting. So this movie could have been longer. Like, are there scenes on the cutting room floor? I can't imagine that much got cut from this movie. A lot got cut from A New Leaf. Like, a lot. Yeah, that movie was three hours long. (laughs) Something like... That's crazy. And they were like, no, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. Yeah, good call. From three hours down to an hour and 40 minutes. Right. Yikes. Yeah, um, but yeah, with Dr. Fibes, I, I wouldn't have minded another... 30 minutes of music maybe you would have minded but right. I, I i would not have minded another 30 minutes of, of dance and musical sequences with the doctor and and volnavia um but yeah her being an automaton makes a lot of sense yeah that tracks for sure um yeah, yeah i don't know it mostly this most this movie really carries on vincent price's performance oh yeah um, he's like the whole movie man just that guy is game for anything. Yeah, I really want to wonder, like, like how many words did they get through before Vincent Price was like, yeah, I'm signing on. Right. Like, were they like, you play a professor, organist, theologian on it. <laughs> Got it. And yeah. he, like, he doesn't deliver a, a half-assed performance. Like, he's all in. No, he's he is fully committed, which is again like I I've spoken many times on this podcast about my negative feelings towards realism as like a kind of aesthetic position. Yeah. Um I I really like that Vincent Price completely just he, he knows that he's in an absurd movie and mm-hmm. and plays it completely seriously, um, which I just I thought that was so so great. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's another movie that he did called Theater of Blood that is very very similar in the sense that it's basically just an hour and a half of Vincent Price killing people. That's awesome. and there's no real story to it. It's just a basic revenge. I'm just going to go and kill people. And it's just set piece after set piece after set piece, uh, which is kind of what this movie is. Who do you think is the Vincent Price of our generation? You know, I was kind of thinking about that. And I've been watching a lot of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia lately because mm-hmm. I never I've watched like seasons one through four when it first came out and then I stopped. So I wanted to go back and rewatch it. And uh, Danny DeVito. <laughs> You think Danny DeVito? That guy, he, some of the stuff they get him to do on that show is 
unreal. It's absurd what they get him to do. And he's he gives it his all every single time. Like, he really commits to the character of Frank Reynolds. Uh, yeah, I think it might be maybe Danny DeVito. I don't know. Who would you say? I love Danny DeVito. And in yeah. fact, I think that Danny DeVito is so underrated. There are a few different 80s movies that Danny DeVito completely made amazing. He's in a really great movie called um, Renaissance Man, where he has to teach these like army brats how to read Shakespeare. It's like proto stand and deliver, oh, yeah. but like more funny, um, less sad. Uh, but but yeah, Danny DeVito, I think. You could maybe say Nicolas Cage, except I would not to dog on on Nick Cage, but I think that Vincent Price and Danny DeVito, too, are better actors. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that uh, Nick Cage also kind of has his purely for the money roles where he's kind of sleepwalking through it. Whereas um, Vincent Price always came yeah. to play. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but I mean, Vince uh, Nicholas Cage is kind of on a, a a second wind. He's kind of got cage-a-sons. a cage essence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ever since Mandy, maybe before Mandy too. But I don't know. I just like Mandy so much. Yeah, Mandy. Mandy was good. Like, I mean, not that that Nick Cage can't can't do serious actor Nick Cage like adaptation. I think. Was oh yeah. A more nuanced role for him while still being Nick Cagey. I'm trying to think like who else fills the Vincent Price hole, or or is there there no one who can really do it like he did? Yeah, I think that this movie and Vincent Price are just kind of a product of their time. Like, they feel very... Well, both movies, both A New Leaf and um, and Fibes feel... They feel really sloppy, and they feel really unpolished, but they feel, like, very heartfelt and very passionate. Like, it was made with a lot of passion. A lot yeah. of passion. Oh, yeah went into both these movies. It just makes me think, like, the 70s were a passionate time. Like, high time to be a serial killer, high time to fall in love. Right. You know, like, the 70s, a lot of violence, but a lot of heart. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And this was sort of... I mean, I know studios always kind of get a bad rap and stuff, but um, this was kind of, like, during that golden age of, like... Well, it was just ending, right, at, at this point? Like, the studio system was done? Yeah, the studio system, I think, was ending during the 70s. So we had this kind of, like, artists, you know, artists kind of coming up, making their versions, uh, making their visions, I mean. The Dennis Hoppers of yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it feels very much like, you know, it it feels like no studio hand really got their or studio head, I should say, really got their hands on this movie because oh, it, no. it nothing about this movie really makes sense, and it's the tone is so perfectly like the cheese level in this movie is so perfect. There's a lot of name jokes where like like fibis fibis i think it's pronounced fibes and katage there's a lot of jokes around katage versus katai or something yeah like the 70s they like violence they like love and then they like wordplay 
Like all the humor. Well, yeah. no, there was some. There was definitely some situational humor in Fives. Some oh, some yeah. strange situational humor. Um, but in A New Leaf, it was like all dialogue based mm-hmm. humor. Yeah. All all completely based on on like wit and stuff like that. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. So this movie, it uh, it just. I mean, it's it's kind of you know. It's kind of cliche to say they don't make them like they used to, but... I don't think they made a movie like The Abominable... <laughs> they they never made a, a movie like The Abominable Doctor Fives. And then they made that movie, and then they haven't made a movie like it no. since. There's a sequel, and I watched the sequel a while ago. Um, and from what I remember, it's not... It's not as good. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I feel like it's a movie that doesn't really have a sequel set up because really, like, you know, like, in a lot of horror movies and romances, it's about the struggle. Right. But in this movie, there is no struggle. No. There, Fibes is always a step ahead of the police, and in the end, he achieves... You know, like we were talking about um, the, the the women's oceans. It's mm-hmm. like that movie. Like right. they completed the highest with zero conflict. Fives killed his victims with no obstacles whatsoever. Right. I mean, the one casualty in the form of his possibly a robot assistant. Mm-hmm. But other than that, he just... There's no obstacles to his plan. He totally... I mean, Victoria is a very lucky girl because he revenges her just perfectly. Yes. Um, did you did you ever see V for Vendetta? Uh, a long time ago. Long time ago. This movie has a lot in common with V for Vendetta. Both movies are about a guy who was burned and then years later devises these extremely complicated plans of revenge uh, which happens to have one female And he's helped person. by a pretty girl, yeah. Yeah, and he's helped by a pretty girl in like an underground lair. Um, and he's, you know, I already said burned, but he's burned and he wears a mask. And I don't, like, it's just, it's weird how much this movie has in common with V for Vendetta. Isn't that, is um, the the guy in the movie, it's, it's Hugo Weaving, right? Mm-hmm. Who's... I yeah. can't believe I remember that. Why isn't Hugo Weaving out here doing Vincent Price stuff? Like, he was Agent Smith. Yeah. He's amazing in that. He was V for Vendetta. I don't even know what that guy's... I know it's like a Guy Fox mask, but I don't know what the character's name was His, in the movie. The name was just V. V? Yeah. But and yeah. there's a lot of V names in this movie. Oh, Victoria yeah. and Venavius. Yeah, and, it's... Yeah. No, that's that's true, but, but yeah, God, no, there there has never been a movie like this. Like I just maybe it's like something with the English people because this movie was made in England yeah. and then written by an English screenwriter. Something's going on across the pond during the seventies. Something, man. They made some crazy horror movies. Um, 
in the 70s. They did. Um, yeah, I I haven't seen that many like 70s British horror movies, but there was a, a 70s, or not, no, not 70s. There was a, a British noir I, I watched once where the plot was an evil doctor keeps his wife's boyfriend uh, as a hostage mm. in his underground lair for like months of course but yeah like it's like like this is not something that we would think of but they're but over there they're like yeah of course yeah and then also the wife's name in that movie is storm for some Whoa. reason that's unique it is very unique um but yeah freaking vibes man um, oh, oh, I wanted to talk about this scene with the doctor he drains of blood. Oh, who yeah. Prior to that is looking at old timey porn. Right. Yeah. He's got a, a hand cranked projector that he has to crank in order to watch. a. Yeah. And like we thought broadband was bad. Right. <laughs> But apparently in the world of Dr. Fibes, you have to get an actual film reel and then crank that film reel. And he's the doctor is such a horn dog that when um when uh what's the assistant's name? Volnavia. Volnavia. When Volnavia shows up and like quote unquote seduces him, he gives zero Yeah, he gives zero um uh, pushback to that he's just like oh you want me to sit down you want to tie me up do whatever you want in this uh, pre-times up world right. any woman can walk into a stranger's house and if you're attractive enough he will be stunned into stupidity and right. let you murder him yeah yeah i thought that was a pretty uh funny little gag too oh, when I she shows up and he's like the crank, the crank the crank pulls out but he's still <laughs> cranking it and then she takes the crank away and his hand is still going like this movie is really silly really good it's so silly yeah but i i like how silly it is yeah. i'm i'm and here it's not, for it it's not silly enough to be like spoof material it's just yeah. silly enough to just make th- it's the the silliness is just enough to make the over-the-top kills seem normal. Well, the movie basically spoofs itself. Like, I guess you could qualify this as a horror comedy. I oh, definitely yeah. don't think it's a, it's the intention of the movie to be taken seriously. No, no it, it, they're they're having they're having a lot of fun. I mean, and then, yeah, just, like, a lot of questionable science, like the Brussels mm-hmm. sprout goo. I like how all those Brussels sprouts come down the, the main pipe, but then Volnavia comes over with a small little basket, and he's, like, really picky and choosy about which ones go in. Like, what about yeah. all those that just, that you just dumped in there? <laughs> you just dumped, like, eight dozen of them in there, and you're picky about these three or four? He'd already sorted through that bench, Oh, I see, maybe. I see. But yeah, no, it's just like, it's so, and the death by unicorn, that Oof. really, that. Out of nowhere, yeah, the beast plague, right? I, oh, that's what I that think, was yeah, meant yeah, to yeah. be? A unicorn is a beast? Sure, what would you call it? I mean, it's, 
Well, it depends on your unicorn lore. In the last unicorn, she's also a pretty lady. Oh. Um, pretty ladies can be pretty beastly in their own true. right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. No, just just ask the girls from Ginger Snaps. Um, what was I going to say? I I completely blanked. Um, yeah, unicorn. Yeah. And then I again, like I loved all of the music in the movie and the mm-hmm. music that played every single time he torched a wax figure. Yeah. I just, yeah, this whole ritual that was designed for the movie is so strange. Like, I just, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in the room when they were coming up with this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, was there a lot of coke? Like, because I know coke just became big in the 70s. Like, that was when it was really on the rise as a trending party drug. Right. Yeah, I don't even just to be part of the making of this movie, um, like just to be a part of like, you know, building all these sets and then Yeah, the sets are insane. Like where like where did they get the idea for his layer? It's it's one of the greatest evil villain layers. It's again, in addition to all his hyphenates. Dr. Fibes is also an engineer, apparently, because he can Mm -hmm. make his automatons, hydraulic lift for his organ. Right. And a very complicated final resting place, like a final tomb for him and his wife. And And it's very ornate. You have that sun and the moon and earth. It's kind of cultish and... Oh, yeah. No, it was the final plague. Darkness. Darkness falls on the land. Um, I... I wasn't sure, though, if we were meant to think that the police and the doctor got trapped inside of his lair after no. he said, no, it no, was just, so. just that he got away with it. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Should we get into some pitches? Yeah. I want to know, though, who did you have a crush on in okay. this movie? Okay. Crushes on this movie? Vincent Price, I okay. think. I, I really want a love, like... Fibes has for Victoria. Right. Like I an really undying love. An undying love. Like you know like like some people like PS I love you the husband dies and then he wants to help his wife find new love. Screw mm-hmm. that. No. Screw that. No, 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 no. If I die in and it's foul play, I want my lover to take revenge for me. If oh, you yeah. are not ready to kill 10 doctors via plague-based crimes, then you don't know what love is the way that Dr. Fibes does. What what put you over the top for Vincent Price as your crush? Was it when he drank the wine through his little nozzle hole? Oh, I love neck? that. <laughs> what oh, a great little oh touch. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I need <laughs> I need people to know that that happened. Yeah. That he drank through his hole while staring into Volnavia's eyes. You know, what really tipped me for him was his soliloquies to his wife yeah. like nine by nine <laughs> dead <must> and dying 
and then I will have fulfilled my purpose. But yeah, he, you know, he was really devoted to her. Yeah. I mean, I I did kind of feel like if Volnavia were a real girl who loved the doctor, then she was getting the short end of the stick just because, you know, like, right. like she's loyal to this guy. Like what if Victoria wanted him to move on? Yeah. Um, but no, no. I I loved his devotion to his wife and and very the, romantic. The seriousness of it. Yeah. Um yeah, I would have to say my crush was um I really could have used at least one more scene featuring the necklace maker. Oh yeah. That guy that was guy. really cool. He uh the 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 police captain or the detective was like totally oblivious to everything and questioning everything, but the doctor was very matter of fact about it and yeah, like the doctor's a he made him see kind of investigator. Yeah, the doctor kind of replied to everything as if the police detective was was stupid. And it really, but he did it in such an innocent, charming way that it was. Yeah, no, th- that's like yeah. a good side character. Like, I feel like you're good at writing those too. Um, and it's like any any movie as campy as this one, you you've got to have at least one wacky side character right. that they interview. Yeah, that side character is a good example of having a scene that's just perfectly sort of um, encapsulated. Where um, everything about that scene, it starts off with a great little dialogue moment between them. And then it ends on a cool little note, um, a fun little note. So that whole scene is just like, it just tickled me. Yeah, no, I can I can definitely see why you'd be crushing on the jeweler. Yeah, yeah it was very, very, very sweet. All right, so... Do you want to? I'm curious. Oh, do you want to show me your your vibes rom com? Yeah, my both of my movies are very messy, so I might I might be making some of this up on the fly or trying to trying to take my convoluted outline and sort of make sense of it as I go. That's okay. I didn't finish my pitch for um, the horror version of a new leaf. Oh, that so was very I, hard. That was it was really hard. But yeah, no, I will be doing the same thing. Yeah. You are in good company. But this yeah, like I said, um, both of these movies feel like they really tread they they cross territory already. Uh-huh. So it was hard to make a version, a remix version of it because it already felt like it dipped its toes. Yeah, no, I, I, I can definitely... Like, I, I took a different angle on A New Leaf because there was yeah. already a murder plot. Um, right. But, but yeah, like, you, you kind of have to uh, decide based on what's already there what you want to lean into because, mm-hmm. like, the romance elements in Dr. Fives are really strong. Yeah. Uh, so my movie is going to be, oh boy, it's going to, it's going to go into some pretty crazy territory. Awesome. So we start off in England, of oh, course. Oh, what's the name? Uh, I named my, there was actually going to be a movie after the sequel to Dr. Fibes, which is called Dr. Fibes Rise Again, Rises Again. Ooh. Uh, they did plan on making a bride to Dr. Fibes. Hell yeah. So I'm going to name my movie Bride to Dr. Fibes. Yes. And this uh, takes place in England, and Dr. Fibes is a world-famous doctor-slash-organist. And uh, he he starts off playing a song to a full crowd, and it's very, love, like, very intense and operatic and theatrical. Uh, but then he invites his wife on stage 
to sing for their anniversary, and it's a lovely little duet, and his wife is a world-famous songwriter slash singer. Um, but at the very end of the song, as Dr. Fives hits the very last note, she collapses into a coma. <gasps> no! Yeah, and it's their 24th anniversary. No! So it's a big, hectic moment. The crowd gasps. Dr. Fives is taken aback. This is the love of his life. 24 years together. It was supposed to be a special little moment, and it ends in just utter tragedy. So Dr. Fibes takes his wife to a hospital, and they do a bunch of tests, and no one can tell him what's wrong with her. So Dr. Fibes goes and tries to play at his next concert, but he fails miserably, and he must excuse himself, and there's a lot of chatter and gossip and stuff like that. So Dr. Fibes is basically ruined. He can't play organ anymore. He can't do surgery anymore. He's basically totally useless without his wife. So what he decides to do is because he's like super rich in this movie, just like how Dr. Fibes has unlimited money in in the original movie, uh, he decides to go on a global tour to find a cure for his wife. Horse. So the very first place they go to is they go to Italy, right? They go to Rome and they go and he decides he's going to um, heal his wife through the power of prayer. So they go to like the Vatican and they meet up with like a bishop or a cardinal or I don't know who's like, I know the Pope is on top, right? One of the pointy hats. But yeah, they go to one of the pointy hat people and Dr. Five sort of like put some money under the table and he's like, hey, if you can get some some monks to worship or to pray for my wife, that would be great. So the bishop accepts the bribe. Of course, you know. the Catholic Church would always do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so they devote a whole monastery to just praying for the wife. And the wife miraculously wakes up. Ooh. But she's a little, like, she doesn't feel quite herself, right? Ooh, like, she a little pet cemetery. Yeah, no, it's mostly just like they go on a date. Maybe she really likes the bread and wine. Uh, Maybe she really wants fish. Maybe she like orders fish for the whole restaurant. Like a lot of Catholic-y type stuff is happening. Jesus symptoms? A lot lot of Jesus stuff going on. Um, uh, And so, but then all of a sudden they're on their date and it's very quirky. And, you know, the wife isn't quite acting right. But Dr. Fives is just so head over heels in love with his wife that he's just happy to have her back. Um, But then all of a sudden she collapses. So he goes back to the to the bishop or the cardinal or whatever, and he's like, hey, what's going on? And he's like, oh, sorry, it's Pope's orders. We all have to start praying. Uh, there was like an earthquake over in Burma or Wait, something. Wait, so they stopped praying for her they and She got praying sick for the again? Wife because of an earthquake, and they have to pray for the survivors of the earthquake. Fuck this earthquake. So they stop praying for the wife, and she falls back into the coma. Ugh, No. Whatever are we going to do? So Dr. Fives takes his wife to Africa where they meet up with a witch doctor. And the witch doctor puts a magic spell on her. And the spell will keep her alive as long as the witch doctor is alive. Right? So they go on like a safari. And maybe, you know, there's other ways where like the wife is just not acting right. 
uh, you know, a lot of like silly little gimmicks and, and physical gags and stuff uh, like that. Okay. Uh, but then all of a sudden she collapses. What? So Dr. Fives goes back to the witch doctor, but it turns out, you know, there's a bunch of villagers there. And he's like, what happened to the witch doctor? And it's like, oh, he was eaten by a lion who was possessed by the ghost of his brother. What? Right. So the witch doctor is dead. So now we go to South America and he meets up with a mad scientist who develops a concoction that's... Is it a Nazi scientist? Well, <laughs> he meets up with a scientist who develops a concoction, and it's kind of like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type thing. But as, you know, so she, they pour the concoction into her mouth, and she's got to drink the concoction, like, you know, once every 24 hours, or else she'll fall back into a coma. But as she drinks the concoction, she starts to develop some very Nazi-esque tendencies oh no so so, but dr fives is very head over heels in love so he kind of you know he excuses some of these things uh but then this is gonna make thanksgiving really awkward then she falls into a coma they go back to the mad scientist but the mad scientist was run out of town presumably for building a sort of frankenstein-esque nazi hitler monster Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and so so then they go to Japan and they go to like an ancient village where um, one of the ancient elders gives them a special remedy. Um, but the wife is acting very strange. She's very hungry. She can't stop eating. She really wants to go to water and lakes. And oh. like she starts drinking all this water and stuff. And it turns out that um, what they gave her was a, a parasite. And so it's not his wife that he's dealing with. It's the parasite that's controlling his wife. So Dr. Fibes has to wrestle the parasite out of her nose and pull this like giant worm type creature out of her out of his wife's nose. I feel like I've seen somebody do that in a movie, but I can't remember which one. Pull a parasite out of someone's body. I don't know. There was a movie. Did you ever see Blade of the Immortal? No. That's about a, a samurai who has these like blood worms and they make him immortal and he has to like kill a thousand bad guys before he can. It's pretty cool. That does sound cool, but no, I, I didn't know about that. Um, and so then next he goes to California where he meets up with this um, like, um, what do you call it? Like a startup kind of guy. And this guy develops a special crown type thing that they attach to her head okay and um, metropolis style right and so then she, as they're out on their date it's just really weird because she keeps asking for him to consent to permission to do stuff and Ew. like anytime they're like out at um, a store she starts like sort of regurgitating advertisements to him and so it turns out that he's that the wife the the device on her head is sort of like like a transmitter? It's like, yeah, it's like transmitting all of their personal data to to someone. And she's oh, basically shit. like... Like, like he, a Russian satellite. Right. So he basically has to agree to these terms and conditions. But in the process, it's like, oh... You never read the terms I and conditions. Know. It's like, oh, not only do you get your wife back, but every 10 minutes you get a commercial. Or you get, you know, your data's being tracked. Fucking Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, so, um... 
So at this point, Dr. Fives is kind of on to the fact that, like, this isn't really his wife. He's not really getting his wife back. So he takes the crown off and he smashes it and stuff like that. So then he flies home defeated. But on the flight home, he talks to the person sitting next to him, who is a piano slash organ repairman. And he agrees to rig an organ for Dr. Fives so he can heal his wife through the power of music. Oh, yeah, baby. However, there's only one organ strong enough in all of the world, and it happens to be in England. However, the site agrees, the site that holds the organ, agrees that Dr. Fibes can use it to revive his wife as long as he puts on a public show. Oh, and he hasn't been able to perform. And he hasn't been able to perform. Oh. oh, oh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So at this point, it's been a whole year. So it's the 25th. The, the concert falls on the 25th anniversary. And right before Dr. Fibes goes out to perform, he gets a, like a package from his wife that's for their 25th anniversary. Oh, she P.S. I love you'd him? Oh, yeah. So he doesn't open it, though. He, he takes it with him with all his sheet music, and he puts the package on the organ, but he puts all the sheet music out, and he starts to play, and at first it's, like, kind of sketchy, and it's like, oh, can I do it? Can I do it? But then he plays all the music, and there's no change. Awesome. There's no effect. Nothing happens. So Dr. Fives is just, like, super defeated, and he's about to give up, but then he notices the present, and he just decides... You know, as he's walking off stage, he decides he's going to open it. And then he notices that what his wife got him was an original piece that she wrote herself. He goes back to the organ and he has to play the music perfectly. Otherwise, you know, he gets one chance at it. Oh, my God. So he, he sits doesn't down. even know how she wants it interpreted. I know. So he sits down and he plays it and he plays the most beautiful song ever written and he plays it beautifully and then she wakes up and as she wakes up they embrace and as they're kissing the crowd gives them a standing ovation oh and yeah like tons of roses are being thrown on the oh, stage yeah. and that's how the movie ends with just like the spotlight and the roses and the applause and everyone's like ah, oh, dr fives yeah that's awesome yeah so bride to dr fives bride to dr fives Man, after all those trials they went through, yeah, it, it kind of it's it gives me like like Santa Clarita Diet with classical music vibes. Oh, I've never seen that show. So I heard it's very funny. Though. It's it's a funny show, but so like Drew Barrymore is a sentient zombie, and right. her husband, instead of him being like, "Ew, I want to kill you because you're a zombie," he genuinely wants to help her, oh, and yeah. and ends up helping her in, you know, immoral ways to, like, feed her zombie habit. And Dr. Fives, he just wants to save his wife. Yeah. But now who is he going to blame if she dies? A whole lot of people all over the world. Did you ever see a movie called Grand Piano? Grand Piano? No. Yeah, this movie kind of takes a little bit of inspiration from that. Grand Piano is with... um, Elijah Wood as a piano player and uh, John Cusack. And Elijah Wood had a terrible performance, but now he's coming back and this is like his big comeback. And he goes out on stage and as he's playing the music and he flips one of the pages, one of the notes is circled and above it is written, play one wrong note and you die. Oh yeah, I remember hearing ah. about this movie. Would and then you... he and then he gets a little he gets a little earpiece and John Cusack is a hitman 
who's got a gun trained to his head like a sniper rifle and they kind of talk about does john cusack just want his favorite soloist to be better again it's no it's a crazy movie the movie is batshit crazy and that does sound it's written by um it's written by Damien Chazelle, who did Whiplash in La La Land. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, he didn't direct it, but um, the movie is beautifully directed. There's a lot of cool one-shot takes, and it's very colorful and very kinetic. Um, so, yeah, Grand Piano. Um, play one wrong note and you die. That's hilarious. What's funny, though, is like in classical music, I think that there's an assumption that the more correct notes you play, the better you are as a player. And maybe that can be true for for piano, not to dog on the piano, but um, in a lot of ways, like it really like how well you play has less to do with playing the like the correct note. Like you can play the correct notes, but if you have like bad intonation or Mm -hmm. your expression is, is wrong, then the music can still sound bad even though you're playing all the correct notes technically. Right. Um, it's like Black Swan, right? Like right. At, uh, Natalie Portman in that movie, she has all the moves down, but does she really feel the character? That's right. Yeah. Seduce me. <laughs> you must seduce me. Go home and play with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> God, that that particular role in that movie is ridiculous. So I, similar to you, I, I stuck with the music theme. Yeah. Because this is very important um, to Dr. Fibes. Now, I decided to go back in time to Whoa. the Fibes Victoria courtship. Okay. And so this is, this is actually the romantic comedy prequel. To the Adam, abom- I don't know why I am struggling to say abominable. It's a tough word. But I want to say abdominal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this I'm going to call the adorable Dr. Five. I like it already. The adorable Dr. Five. So act one. Dr. Fibes is the youngest professor at London's Royal College of Music. He's a double specialization in organ and theology, and he's extremely wealthy. But Dr. Anton Fibes is also lonely. One day, Anton is walking by the practice rooms and judging all the playing he's hearing. Like He's like, oh, this guy's bad. This one, oh, you're not playing to the rhythm. Like, he's just judging everyone. But then he hears the sound of somebody playing the violin very beautifully. And it's Victoria, Dr. Fibes future dead wife. <laughs> as soon as she notices she's being watched, she doesn't want to play as well, and her bow starts shaking. Victoria has debilitating stage fright. Oh, no. So Fibes sees this, and he mentions it. Um, but he comes off as rude, uh, sorry, yeah, so he comes off as rude and pretentious, so Victoria gets angry and he, she demands he leaves, but then Fives cannot stop thinking about Victoria over the next few days. Every time he sees her, he stares, and then she starts to notice too, but she's like a little bit freaked out by it. Yeah. Um, 
But one day, Fibes walks up to Victoria on the quad where she's sitting next to a fountain, but he startles her and she accidentally pushes him into the fountain. Uh-oh. So Victoria then helps him out, but then she gets angry because she still thinks that Fibes has been staring at her because she because he thinks that she's a bad musician and she doesn't belong at the conservatory. But Dr. Fibes, he doesn't want to reveal that he's obsessed with her, so he looks at a nearby community board for inspiration. There are auditions for an upcoming Felix Mendelssohn concert, and he tells Victoria that he thinks she should audition. Victoria says she can't because of her stage fright, and Dr. Fibes claims to her that he can cure it. Mm. So that's the setup. Now we get into the second act where Fibes has Victoria meet him at his house every night for stage fright lessons in his big weird ballroom. Um, We learn that Fibes built the automatons originally so that Victoria could practice playing with an orchestra and in front of an audience. That's why there are no string automatons, though I feel like getting an automaton who can play the violin is probably going to be difficult anyway. And then Fibes, he's he's kind of a grumpy teacher, but he mm-hmm. and Victoria still grow close during their sessions. And then audition day comes, and Victoria plays her heart out. She doesn't get the soloist position for the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto part of the concert, but they do make her the concert master. So that means that she's basically the, the second best violinist to the soloist. Um, when when he makes the automatons as part of her audience, does he design it so that the automatons are like rowdy? I don't know. So it's like know. a distraction almost? Maybe, like you have to play does. through the distraction? Maybe he does that or maybe he makes them nice. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure. He does, want, he does want to help her. Yeah, so she's concert master. She goes to Fibes' office to share the news, but then she stops short because she sees Fibes embracing and kissing another woman. What? And Fibes sees Victoria and tries to explain, but she runs away. Yeah. So, like, he had a girlfriend this whole time? What the hell? Um, they haven't done anything yet, but they're the but emotions. Still, yeah. The emotions are it was there. Impli- there was an implication feelings. that they were together. There are feelings. Um, so we get to the night before the Mendelssohn concert, and Victoria has been avoiding fibes. We also learn that the violin soloist has come down with the flu, and that means that Victoria now has to take her place. Whoa. So she's super nervous. And she's still in the practice rooms late at night, and that's where Fibes finds her. He goes into the practice room, bars the door, demanding she let him explain. He says that the woman was his girlfriend, but what she saw that day was them breaking up. He admits that he hasn't been able to get her off his mind from the second he first heard her play. He doesn't know what this is, but he can't be without her. And boom, they kiss. Victoria admits that she's still worried about the concert tomorrow. And then Fibes relaxes her by waltzing with her in the practice room. Uh, Because dancing is a huge part of their courtship. So with Fibes' love and her confidence restored, Victoria rocks the concert the next day. And Fibes is ready with a bouquet of roses and some kind words. Uh, Victoria tells him that if he's going to be with her, there's one thing, one more thing he has to know. 
she has terminal cancer no. and will be operated on in the next few months. But Fibes assures her that with his money, he can assemble the best team of doctors in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where it ends because it's a prequel. Right. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, so they they had a wonderful love and courtship and and you know, you know, even though Fives is super devoted to his wife post death, I wanted to make it clear that their courtship wasn't conflict free. Right. Like maybe they didn't get along. Maybe Fives had pants feelings for Victoria in spite of himself. Mm. Because he was already engaged in another relationship and maybe right. he only wanted to help her with her music, but you know, then you catch feelings and all bets are off. Oof. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, when, relationships catch, are hard. Once you catch feelings, it's really difficult to proceed with your murder plans, mm-hmm. is, is what we've learned. So. So. Let's get into a new leaf, which, by the way, was in the comedy section. Okay, yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It like like this movie is. It's a comedy. It is a it is a comedy, but it again like really like all the humor comes from from wordplay pretty much. Yeah, I would agree with that. How would you summarize this movie? Well. I would say Henry Graham is a spoiled rich gentleman living off of his father's inheritance slash business. However, after many attempts to reach Henry and get through to him, Henry's lawyer explains to him that he is officially broke and has zero money left. Because he kept selling all of his shares. Yeah. Well, who gave him the right to do that? Henry did. Uh, the first, oh, Henry briefly, uh, contemplates suicide before coming up with another brilliant idea, marrying into wealth. Henry borrows $50,000 from his uncle under the condition that he must pay it back in six weeks or his uncle gets everything Henry owns. The first five weeks are spent going on comically disastrous dates, which causes Henry to lose all hope. Things start to look up for Henry, though, when he meets Henrietta Lowell, a clumsy botanist professor who has a large inheritance of her own. Henry attempts to date Henrietta, but he finds himself more babysitting her due to her extreme clumsiness. Running out of time on his contract with his uncle, Henry proposes to Henrietta, who enthusiastically accepts the marriage proposal. Henrietta's lawyer tries to talk her out of it, assuming that Henrietta is just in it for Henrietta's mo- or assuming Henry is in it for her money. Henry's uncle even sends the lawyer a copy of their contract, but Henrietta remains oblivious to Henry's true feelings towards her despite being confronted head-on with this evidence. Yeah, he explains it away kind of brilliantly though. Yeah. Um well, she also, she's very uh, naive and innocent when it comes to people around her. Right. Uh, Henry and Henrietta wed and go, on, uh, and go on their honeymoon, where Henrietta thinks she may have discovered a new species of fern. Meanwhile, Henry starts researching ways in which he can kill Henrietta and make it look like an accident so he can rid of her but keep all that sweet, sweet money. 
As Henry moves into Henrietta's mansion, he discovers the house staff have been swindling Henrietta out of money for years and fires all of them. They go to Henrietta's lawyer upset, but he convinces them to drop it as he is also involved in the swindling. Henrietta reveals to Henry that the fern she discovered was indeed a new classification of species and informs him that she has named it after him, Elsophily Grahami. Henry invites, or Henrietta invites Henry to go on her annual field trip, this time to the Adirondacks, and he joins her. While canoeing, the pair hit some rapids, and the canoe is overturned. Henry manages to make it to the shore, but Henrietta is stuck, grabbing onto some logs, revealing that she can't swim. Henry tells her to let go, and he will save her. As she lets go, Henry walks away, practicing his story to, to the police, intending for her to drown. That's when he spots a patch of Elsafali Grahami and decides to save his wife. Upon saving her, she convinces him to teach history at the school where she teaches, and Henry comes to terms with his new relationship with Henrietta, and the two walk off into the sunset together. Um, that's the, the basic plot of the movie. I kind of skipped over some of the... the the silly gags and all that stuff. I figured you probably had your favorites that you'd like to point out. I mean, honestly, one of my favorite moments was simply, um, so Henry and Henrietta are on a date to dinner and I've never had this done for me at a fancy restaurant, but maybe this happens at a really fancy place. They pull out the table when Henrietta goes to sit up. And when they pull out the table, you see that her lap is covered in breadcrumbs that fall off of her when she stands up. And this is one of the most relatable things (laughs) a woman has ever done on screen for me. I absolutely run into this problem in real life. And I, I thought that was pretty funny. One thing that I was really confused about is, um, is Henry gay or asexual? I think he's asexual. Yeah, I think he might be ace. Because at no point, like, like there are a few points in the movie where it seems like Henrietta wants to fuck. And he is not into it. And then there was another scene before Henrietta where a woman was about to take her top off. And he was like, no, no, don't. (laughs) Yeah, um, yeah, he very much seems disgusted by women. Right. Uh, But he never shows any interest towards men. That's also true. So it was a little confusing in that regard, yeah. But I think they just meant it as like he's just so spoiled that the fact that he has to deal with anyone else at all seems to really... Because he doesn't really like anyone in the movie. That's true. I feel like the only person he halfway likes is his, like, is it his valet or his butler? Um, I think I would probably say his butler. Right, yeah, that's yeah. the only person that he halfway likes, and I feel like the butler likes Henry more than Henry deserves. Yeah, but it was pretty funny when the butler was like, you know, I respect you for keeping traditions alive that were <laughs> right. that were created since before you were born, and he's like, very few men allow, require my services and appreciate what I do, and it's an honor serving you. 
Having said that, I put in my two weeks. Like I thought that was right, pretty funny. Right. No, they. I, I. I thought that they were really witty, and um, it was cool to see. Um, the housekeeper is played by. Um, I forget what that actress's name is, but you see mm. her a lot playing like the grandma character. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought she was hilarious. Um, you know, what's interesting is like, this isn't actually the first rom-com I've seen with Walter Matthau and I found his, maybe it was just the character of Henry is so strange Mm -hmm. where he, he seems like he's like an asexual sociopath where in the other movie where I saw Walter Matthau, he plays a doctor who lies to Goldie Hawn about being married um, because he doesn't want to have a serious relationship with her. Sure. Um, But then when he does want a serious relationship, she can't stand the idea of him divorcing his wife and the wife being tragically upset. And so Walter Matthau gets Ingrid Bergman who is his receptionist to pretend to be his wife oh, and tell Goldie Hawn that everything's okay right. with the divorce. And in that movie, he was more like a like what we've come to know as like a Walter Matthau character. Like he's a little bit grumpy. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's a little bit ignorant of the social graces. Like I feel like like Walter would you say that like Walter Matthau in the seventies was kind of like a proto Larry David? How would you say that? Well, because he's kind of like he's kind of grumpy and acerbic and doesn't necessarily subscribe to the. I mean, I guess in A New Leaf, he's very much into a particular social order. Like they're servants; they're not people. Right. Um, but in other movies, it seems like he ends up getting into comedic situations because he doesn't want, like in a Larry David way, maybe he doesn't want to subscribe to hmm. the regular social graces, or maybe I'm getting Walter Matthau totally wrong. I don't know. I guess I'd have to watch more Walter Matthau movies. Um, I saw who is Charlie Varick, which is a great heist movie that he's in. Oh yeah. I've heard about that movie. Um, but other than that, I don't know if I've really seen a lot of his stuff. So I don't know. Right. That's interesting, though, that because I'm a huge Larry David fan. I wasn't picking up any vibes based on this movie. Well, yeah, in this movie, like I would say, compared to the other movie I described, like his character is very different. Like I don't know, like it like again like maybe i don't have a good enough grasp of walter matthau's career to know what kind of characters he would play mm-hmm. but i don't know like like if he was necessarily the right person to be henry okay or i i'm not sure like like okay if the new leaf were done today who do you think would play henry hmm someone who's super rich and snobby but they don't but they i don't know who would you pick you know controversial but i feel like i would pick someone like robert pattinson who seems like they're attractive but also weird right like i feel like he could play an asexual sociopath 
who's pretending to be in love with a woman. Okay. Um, I have to brush up on my Robert Pattinson too. I haven't seen. I haven't seen his. Uh, <laughs> you haven't seen the Lighthouse. <laughs> I haven't. No, I haven't seen. I heard Good Times was pretty good. Oh yeah, I heard. I heard that too. But like, he's kind of like morphed from teenage heartthrob into like Kiefer Sutherland weird territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's weird. He never really was like a heartthrob. In the sense that, like, he did a lot of movies that were heartthrobby. He just all he yeah, did he was, was the just, Twilight. But I mean, but that was enough to propel him into the stratosphere, right? But sometimes, like, movies can make an actor's destiny, like how yeah. Clockwork Orange makes Ant like Anthony McDowell's destiny. It's like he's always sure. going to be shaded by that role. Yeah. Or he's like, I think people are always going to be comparing Robert Pattinson against his early work. Okay. Maybe. What about Joaquin Phoenix? Joaquin Phoenix? I feel like Joaquin... Oh, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix could... To- you know, yeah. not only do I think Joaquin Phoenix could play Henry, I think that if there was a Dr. Fibes remake, that Ooh. Joaquin could probably Fibes. Right. I think he could Fibes. Yeah, that would be interesting to, uh, <laughs> to get yeah, him in I wonder, vibes. like, because like, uh, Joaquin's a method actor, right? I think so. Yeah, so I would want to see how he methods. Yeah, Dr. he method vibes. he methoded his way almost out of a career in that one movie where he was that fake the documentary. Yeah, where he was like a rapper. He was way too method. And then he got called out during the middle of filming. It got let out that it was all a gag and so they tried to work it into the movie that whole movie's a mess i've never seen it it's a mess because halfway into it it's revealed and leaked that it's all fake so then they have to like try to justify the movie as they're making it and like but it's not all fake it's just they tried to pull a sherman's march um what's sherman's march so sherman's march is a documentary where this guy starts shooting this documentary about sherman's march being you know the pathway that this southern general took through the south but right at the beginning of the movie he gets dumped by his girlfriend and so then the documentary actually becomes about him um, interviewing these different women about himself and trying to understand why this relationship ended. Like, he was going to do Sherman's right. March, but then it really ends up being just a story about him trying to figure out why he got dumped. And then the women he meets or is friends with along the way who try to help him figure it out. Hmm. But like that that happens sometimes with documentaries where they have to change tones yeah. in the Did middle. you ever see the Amazing Jonathan documentary? No. That was a weird one cuz it's like the Amazing Jonathan had like seven documentary filmmakers all filming about him at one point. So this documentary filmmaker starts to make the movie sort of about him. About the documentary? So, yeah, it's just it seems to happen a lot with documentaries, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's what happens when you're you're dealing with with real life. I yeah, this movie again, like I really don't understand why it's so critically well liked. Yeah. It um I mean, it kind of 
it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Blues Brothers. Yeah, but Blues Brothers is hilarious. Right. <laughs> and But it just reminded me of that in the sense of like, uh, it's... It, uh, it doesn't feel laugh-out-loud riotous throughout the whole thing, but there's yeah. enough character in the movie to, like, propel the movie along. Um, it just... I mean, I, I like Blues Brothers more because yeah. I like those characters more and I like the cameos in that movie more. Um, but it just... It, it had that sort of proto blues brothers type where it felt kind of avant-garde and like i couldn't tell if the joke was how witty the the script was or if it, it kind of had this like fraser syndrome where it was like it reminded me so <laughs> much of fraser right? i'm so glad you mentioned after that. a certain point where you're making fun of rich people down to like the nth degree it's like well are you really making fun of rich people or are you just making a movie about rich people for rich people. Mm. Like, this movie felt like after a certain point, it's like, okay, you're so dedicated to the joke that is it really funny anymore? Right, or like, I don't know. I felt like, like I think what we talked about with previous movies, like, again, maybe this is just my anti-realism stance, but I felt like they could have gone bigger. Yes. They could have gone so much bigger with some of the jokes like they could have had harry or henry imagine killing her in several other ways like there's a a really funny an older movie called divorce italian style have you ever seen it no you've mentioned it um but in the movie because in italy they have this ridiculous law where i think that if you kill your spouse while catching them cheat on you it's like a reduced sentence or something Mm -hmm. this must be a much bigger problem in italy right i Um, can imagine but so that's what the guy in the movie like he starts to he wants to get rid of his wife so he starts imagining how he can kill her and then you see several like multiple iterations of him imagining how he's gonna kill her and each one of them is really funny. And they do a little bit of that in A New Leaf, but I feel like not nearly enough. Yeah, like there's a funny little scene where she's sort of strapped to a tree hanging over a cliff, pulling yes. out a fern from the side of the cliff. And he's like in the foreground reading a toxicology book. Right. And it's like, it's a silly little moment, but I feel like there could that could have like been more. Three other ones yeah. like that. And it was weird at the very beginning of the movie, there's like 10 solid minutes of Henry walking around saying goodbye to all of the things he's going to miss as a rich person. Right. But then when he goes on the dates. He's still in all those places. It's But no, it's like there's only two dates that he goes on before he meets Henrietta. Like, that should have been a source for characters and and, right. and cameos and, like, comedy and hijinks. And, like, I don't need to see him walking around saying goodbye to rich things for ten minutes. Right. And then only have two minutes of date time. I, it felt I a little unbalanced. It, it did feel a little unbalanced. You know what movie I think does that kind of sequence really, really well is uh, Coming to America. 
like the okay. beginning of coming the beginning of coming to America when they first get to Queens and they're going on all these dates in the club and it's like not going well and you get all the cameos and just yeah. all these like ridiculous setups and um I think in coming to America one of the women is um Arsenio Hall in drag like they oh, they just sure. like they like have fun with it until yeah. finally somebody's like no Eddie Murphy you need to go to church to find a nice girl right. um but yeah I felt like 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 that's what this could have been where like it would have been just a parade of women Mm-hmm. Um, who were all wrong in really funny, bold ways. But right. no, they didn't They didn't really do that. Um, also, I was reading up apparently... So the things that were cut out of this movie, uh, Henry killing more people, right. uh, that was apparently something that in the original story, um, Henry is a serial killer, basically, but he just decides not to kill Henrietta. Yeah, I was confused because in the um, in the uh, uh, trivia or whatever, uh, the Wikipedia page or something, when they mentioned that they cut it from three hours down to an hour and a half or down to an hour 40, um, they mentioned that at the end of the movie, he accepts his fate with Henrietta as a sort of punishment for his crimes. Ah. And then in in the version that we saw, the theatrical version, he sort of they sort I don't know if they had to do reshoots or I can't imagine they would have done reshoots because Elaine May wouldn't have. It sounded like she objected to it pretty hard. Right. Um, but it's like uh, in in that version, it's almost like he comes to love her and. Yeah, like, like her. Does he love her or does he maybe love like. himself? Right. Because she names something after him and she makes him feel important. Yeah. But I mean, you definitely get the sense that like the butler is rooting for them to fall in love. Right. He he thinks that that she's made Henry a better person. Yeah, I just I really was was hoping that there would be more more moments like um i think a what's up doc with barbara streisand is also in the 70s and that movie it's just like joke after joke after joke after joke and it never stops um but you just didn't get that with a new leaf like i was really surprised especially since like Nichols and May right. was a famous 60s comedy duo, you know? So I, I would have thought like we get more from them, but maybe that's just like my modern expectations. Like in the 70s, maybe that amount of jokes was enough, but for us children maybe. of the new millennium, we just need more jokes. Could be. Um, there's a lot of older movies that are pretty joke joke heavy that's true yeah um so i don't know yeah this movie seems more concerned with atmosphere and getting the getting the tone right of the rich culture and it's like but why though why i think that's the joke i think that is the joke just suppose so just like with fraser i'm not a huge fan of fraser oh i love fraser 
Um, but it did definitely remind me of yeah, Frasier. Yeah. Like, particularly Henry is very Frasier-esque. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. So it, it definitely felt like this movie wanted to be very character-heavy. Um, there's some there's some well-written lines in there. Oh, yeah. I, I thought it was really funny. Um, or the, the lines in particular, like... When Henrietta asked him, he's like, so are you going to always be there for me? Unfortunately so. Yeah. Or um, <laughs> like I said earlier, they're not people, they're servants. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, there were a few sort of like moments when Henry would just sort of like mumble to himself something here or there where I found myself chuckling. Wasn't there a moment in the movie like right before he... Uh, meets Henrietta where there's a couple that introduces themselves as the Hitlers. Ooh, I don't know. I might I have missed that, that part. I thought that that was what, what they said and he was like, yeah. oh, are you the Hitlers of such and such? Huh. <laughs> I don't remember that part. <laughs> but like, it's like stuff like that where like, it's like little asides or I felt like I could have done with like, maybe this is what ended up on the cutting room floor is more action with the lawyer because I felt like his character was yeah. really funny. Like I would have loved to see more battles between the lawyer and Henry and them playing off of each other. Right. Um, like I did think the wedding scene was was funny where he's like trying to make her not go up the aisle and yeah. and she's like dragging him along and then he's crying behind them as they're getting married. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Um but it could have been more. I don't know. I hear you. I definitely hear you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shall we, before we get into our pitches, announce who... Um, who we want to kill? Who we want to kill from this movie. Uh, I mean, from a moralistic standpoint, I definitely want to kill that lawyer. Mm-hmm. He was such a scumbag. He really was, but from a character standpoint, he's so much fun. But he is—he is fun to watch. So I'm gonna go with the lawyer. But um, I'm, I'm glad that it would have been—it would have been interesting to see that three-hour cut. Yeah, Man. I really like again because like, I guess I guess so much went away. Henry kills him in the chauffeur, which they kind of have a comeuppance angle yes. where it's like he's justified in killing them. But then it's just so bizarre how the ending of that movie was supposed to be interpreted that he just, like, accepts his fate as, like, a punishment. Just, what a weird movie. A punishment to be with Henrietta, who really yeah. did nothing wrong except discover a new species of plant and yeah. name it after him. That poor and, lady. And maybe, maybe she gets crumbs on her lap, but, you know, some of us... Some of us that that happens, okay? Yeah. We're we're still good people, Henrietta and I. Um, I think who would I kill from this movie? I would probably kill the housekeeper because not only does she swindle Henrietta oh, yeah. out of all her money, she makes it very clear to Walter Matthau that she is down to clown. Oh, yeah, so, that was weird when she was winking at him. She keeps winking at him. Yeah. So it's like this woman steals Henrietta's money, and she wants to steal her husband, 
and she gets the entire household in on her scam but it really it was the lawyer scam but they but they all went along with it so yeah i would probably kill the the housekeeper or the lawyer gotcha yeah good call so I'm curious as to how you're going to horrorize this movie. <laughs> so this is the one where we, we may we may have to, to finish off with some some uh, improv. Sure. But the some title, last minute rewrites. Some last minute rewrites. <laughs> some yes anding. Gotcha. Uh, the name of this new film is called Flytrap. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I don't have a title for mine. I, I stuck with the botany theme. Yeah. So like the original movie, Henry is a rich ne'er-do-well who suddenly loses all his money, so he has to marry rich to maintain his lifestyle. And then after trial and error, he finds the clueless and rich botanist Henrietta to be the perfect mark. They get married after a whirlwind courtship, but things start to get weird when Henry gets to Henrietta's house. Mm. The entire staff acts like zombies, and they have a green tinge to their skin. Henrietta has no rules for Henry, except that he can't go into the room with the red door. Whoa. So it's kind of like a reverse Bluebeard situation. Uh, every now and then, Henry observes staff going through the door and coming back out greener and more zombie-like. Henry ignores this for the most part because he's working on plans to kill Henrietta. He goes to the gardener to see if he has any toxic weed killers he can use on Henrietta, but stops short of the greenhouse when he sees the gardener yelping while pulling out leaves growing out of his fingers. As the gardener pulls out the leaves, his hands bleed dark greenish blood. Gross. So it's, yeah, it's also any chance to get some Cronenbergian elements in there. Gotta, gotta take him. So that's act one. Now we've got act two is Henry just starting to, now his eyes are open. He's noticing Mm -hmm. all that weird shit that's going on with the staff. Um, And he's seeing like bloody leaves stashed in a way. And his solution is to fire everyone and tell Henrietta that they were stealing her money. Uh, He does this and puts a new staff in place. But within a week, they start to show the same symptoms as the previous staff. And Henry knows that whatever is going on is behind that red door to the room he's forbidden to go into. I bet. He's got to go in that room, guys. So now we get to the final act. Henry cannot take it anymore. And when Henrietta is away, he goes into the room and inside he finds a giant carnivorous plant has taken over a corner of the room, Little Shop of Horror style, mm-hmm. uh, with vines and branches extending outwards. And then there's also like the drained husks of former servants on the floor, like they're like deflated skin bags right. or something like that. So now Henry knows the truth. He turns to leave the room and then Henrietta appears and it all comes out exactly what um, what he planned to do to Henrietta. And we learned that Henrietta knew the whole time. Oh. And the plant grabs Henry. And we learned that Henrietta was actually using Henry too because she wanted to find the perfect 
male avatar for her carnivorous plant's sentient brain. And so the carnivorous plant inhabits Harry's mind or Henry's mind and the plant and Henrietta live happily ever after. And maybe like there's like a side plot or like a B plot with the butler also trying to figure it out because he loves Henry and he wants to save him, but then he's too late, you know? But yeah, I I would end it with a bummer ending. Henry dead, the plant taking over him and being Henrietta's ultimate mate. Because I think even though she wants to bone down with Henry, she loves plants more than people. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, she's um, she definitely would um, prefer plant Henry over human Henry any day of the week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like it. It's very uh, body snatchers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's neat. Um, I don't have a title for mine, so I'll just go with the unused one that I did okay. last week, which is Till Death Do Us Part. Oh, well, that works for this. Sure. Why not? Um, so basically the same thing, which is Henry, he's a very spoiled, rich playboy, very much a party guy. Uh, Henrietta, who's a botanist from a rich family. In mine, I'm just going to go with a sort of arranged marriage type thing. Like they're both in such high class societies that, um, they have an arranged marriage. So things don't, Things aren't really great after the marriage because Henry is very much a partier. He's very disruptive. He's disruptive to the house staff. um, And the house staff don't like him. So the house staff decides that they're going to get together and they're going to kill Henrietta and blame it on Henry. Oh, shit. Yeah. So uh, Henrietta sort of bribes Henry into going to the Adirondacks for their honeymoon. You know, she's kind of like, if you go with me to the Adirondacks, I'll buy you that super fancy car you like or something. A new he's Ferrari like, that doesn't break down. Yeah, every every time he drives it. Um, and so that's kind of the act one sort of thing. And so then act two is them in the Adirondacks and uh, Henrietta is busy working and Henry is miserable um you can sort of get away with a couple little gags there and stuff sort of lighten the mood but then henrietta slowly starts feeling ill Uh, eventually she starts throwing up blood and she suspects she's been exposed to something however henry finds a diary in his tent that is from his point of view about how much he resents henrietta and his plan to kill her by poisoning her they're framing him. Yeah. So he goes out and he throws the book in the fire. And like he's very confused and flustered and he doesn't know what it is. But then we see a shot from like someone's binoculars and someone's watching him. Uh, so then the next day he's out with Henrietta and she suggests that they get the canoe and they go downstream and they leave early. But just as they're loading all their equipment into the canoe, she's shot with an arrow. No. Whoa. So like there's chaos. Half of their equipment goes missing or overboard. They got to get into the canoe. There's a bunch of mishaps. Arrows are flying everywhere. They don't know what to do. Henry's not very like, um, he's not like a manly man. He's very much a party guy. So he doesn't like, he's not very good at rowing and swimming and all that stuff. Neither is Walter Matthau. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so then they, they end up going over a waterfall and they're on the other side of the river. So whoever's hunting them, they're like, you know, there's, 
there's a delay in them finding them. Um, so now Henry must take care of Henrietta, who's sort of like immobilized oh my God. and stuff like that. So she has to guide him how to survive the woods while everything is going wrong, right? Um, so it's very much a survival horror story from this point out. There's right. there's building shelter, there's making fire, there's foraging for food, there's fighting off wolves slash a bear, and there's traversing terrain. I figure at one point maybe there's like a little bear cub and he's about to kill it or something for food, no. but then he decides not to, and then like a mama bear comes over and it's like, whoa. And it's very scary, tense, but oh, the mama bear Nature leaves. is teaching some lessons. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's like traversing terrain type stuff where maybe they have to like go over a ravine and he's got to like rig up some sort of police system to get oh, her Oh, like over. Sam Worthington and Rogue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just like that. Uh, no crocodiles in the Adirondacks, but... Um, and then at one point they find a park ranger and they're saved, but then the park ranger is killed, so they have to retreat. And this no. is... This is where um, this is where Henry sort of snaps and he's got to start fighting back Rambo style. They drew you know, first blood. They drew first blood. Um, and so then you know he makes very primitive weapons and traps and stuff. And you know there's just a really awesome ten minutes of him killing all the staff, the house staff people as they're like, Ugh, yes, going through the woods. So he kills all of the house staff except for the main leader. You know the the head lady. Um, oh yeah and so then they're about to fight and he's about to be defeated and she's about to kill henrietta who's laying there immobilized but then the mama bear from before comes and kills the oh, lady hell yeah right Payback. yeah so it's like that's why you don't kill baby bears because then mama bear might save you later uh so then like um Henrietta is feeling just good enough to kind of like stand on her feet with some help. So Henry sort of takes Henrietta to the road and then they flag down a truck driver and the truck driver is like not like an 18 wheeler, but, you know, a smaller right. like, pickup truck type truck. And the truck driver's like, get in the back. And like, all right. It's like, I'll take you to town. And then as they drive away, the truck driver says into his radio something like, I got two more headed your way. They thought they were out of it. And they get pulled right back in. Yeah. I like that. I like that in in both of our versions. Well, actually, no. In my version, Henry is still a bad guy. In your mm-hmm. version, he has redemption capabilities. Right. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We could, see, we could see him changing as a character, learning how to be more protective. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, I wanted to uh, throw a twist on the uh, spousal killing mm-hmm. because, um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting that that movie, A New Leaf, went in that direction. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. he's got to kill her. He's got to kill her. <laughs> it's um, the only way. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess love bites. Love bites. Love bites. What do you got for this week? Ooh, okay. I'll mention two, but one is super quick. Okay. Um, one is I watched a movie called Malice. Have you ever seen Malice? No. Okay, so this is a movie written by Aaron Sorkin and Scott Frank. If you don't know who Scott Frank is, he wrote the screenplay to Out of Sight. Oh. Which is 
an amazing movie. And it has a good romance plot, right? Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing movie. Uh, he wrote a bunch of other stuff, but um, he also did this movie called A Walk Among Tombstones that he wrote and directed with Liam Neeson, which is really, really, really good. I mean, that title plus Liam Neeson definitely It's, it's like a hard-boiled neo-noir kind of thriller about serial killers and this cop who has to it's uh, it's just you're really speaking good. a bunch of buzzwords and it's got dan my... stevens oh really yeah, he's yeah, so yeah. cute yeah um, well he's kind of a is he is he kind of a shady character he's a shady one. character yeah, yeah, yeah. in this one he also has some keither sutherland qualities where it's like i'd say creepy? dan stevens would is probably be my pick for oh yeah for, dan stevens would be a great henry yeah yeah he'd be awesome That's a good one did you ever okay. see the guest um no, no, but I heard about it's a, it. It's a pretty good movie. But yeah, so it's called Matt, Ma- Ma- Malice. Malice. And it's got Bill Pullman, Alec oh, Baldwin, yes. Love and Nicole Pullman. Kidman. Oh, yeah. And it's about, I, I don't even want to describe it. But at one point in the movie, I, I watched it because we were on this doctor kick. And Alec Baldwin oh, plays yeah. a doctor in it. And it's about this like malpractice type of lawsuit thing going on. And in it. How Fibesian. Oh, yeah. In it, Alec Baldwin is under trial. It's like a deposition. So they're in, not in a courtroom, mm-hmm. but they're in a deposition where Alec Baldwin performed a surgery on Nicole Kidman and his surgery is being called into question. And Nicole Kidman's lawyer asks Alec Baldwin, do you have a God complex? And Alec Baldwin goes on this two minute monologue about how he is God. During a deposition? It's so fucking badass. It's like, you can tell Aaron Sorkin wrote that monologue. Like, it is just the most Sorkin-y thing. And you got Alec Baldwin, who's like probably one of the best actors at playing a total asshole in the history of actors he playing assholes. He really has cornered <laughs> the asshole market. And so it's like, uh, just imagine if Alec Baldwin from... Um, from Thirty Rock. From no, Glen Gary, Glen Ross <laughs> gave gave an Aaron Sorkin monologue. It's, I can imagine ah, it. It's so just Google. Like I can't really recommend the movie because the movie is it's not that great. I enjoyed it, but, but it's that scene. But that scene, just Google malice God complex. It's ah, oh, it's just oh, it's gravy. It's gravy. Uh, but the other movie that I saw that I wanted to to mention because you're always mentioning catnip. Yeah. Like, what is our catnip? Uh, I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan, and I'd never seen the movie Executive Decision. Oh. So I finally sat down to watch Executive Decision. Unfortunately, one of the big twists of the movie was spoiled for me early. Like it's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah. It's such you know. an old movie right. that no one cares anymore about spoiling it. Right. So I'd say go in cold if you can. Okay. Because there's something that happens that's kind of shocking, that's kind of cool. Uh, but a lot of this movie takes place, it's about, it's kind of Air Force One-y where these army commando people have to like get onto a plane that's being held hijacked and there's plenty of twists and turns. Sounds perfect for Kurt Russell. Oh, Kurt Russell's so... And Kurt Russell doesn't play, like, the hero hero in it. He plays the sort of, like... He doesn't play... 
the snake plisson badass hero he kind of plays like the more reluctant backed into a corner hero ah he plays like the nerdy he's like a nerdy doctor he's nerdy in this who gets trapped on the plane by accident which how do you get trapped on a plane by accident wait so he's a nerd that doesn't know he's actually kurt russell yes (laughs) um But, like, part of the movie involves a plane that's, like, a stealth prototype that's specifically designed to create a tunnel to another plane so that they can sneak on from one plane to another without getting detected. Oh, this sounds like there's some great stunts in this movie. Oh, so good. But the the thing that uh, is my catnip is procedures, right? So, like... How they have to fly the plane at just the right altitude underneath the other plane, Mm. then get into the right spot, and then attach the tunnel, and then go up and undo the one hatch and pressurize the tunnel, and then go in. Like, the whole sequence is like a 20-minute sequence, and it's just procedures. It's Oh, and Oliver Platt is in it, which is Oh, nice. (laughs) Uh, So Oliver Platt plays the sort of scientist who designed the airplane, the stealth airplane. And it's just, you know, it's a lot of like, you know, turn turn the left wing 14 degrees, copy that, turning the left wing 14 degrees, and, and then, then there's you a see problem. the wing turn. Yeah, and then like once they attach to the plane, the plane starts moving, and they're like, we're going to detach. No, keep it together. And it's like, <laughs> it's just a lot of that stuff. And like there's one point where they have to like hack into the, to the one plane's... Um, uh, systems, or they oh, have to like. Yeah. They have to like. Is uh, this an eighties movie? Uh, no, I think it's nineties or nineties. Yeah, 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 but nine hacking right. was a great <laughs> procedure uh, so point in a lot of early nineties movies. But and then like, oh, and then there's this great thing at the end of the movie that is like so cliche, but it's so because by the but it's satisfying. It's it's, it's 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 set up at the beginning of the movie. But then you completely forget about it by the end of the movie because there's so many twists and turns. But then when they <laughs> when they do the thing that's so cliche, you're like, oh, of course they had to tack on another 20 minutes to this movie. Oh, that's uh, perfect. It's, that sounds great. Kurt Russell is... Oh, and Holly Berry's in it. Oh, Holly Berry? Yeah, she plays one of the flight attendants. Um, yeah. it's um, It's a really good standard... 90s action movie that's made even better by the fact that Kurt Russell's in it. That honestly sounds great. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I want to watch the Malice uh, monologue for sure, but yeah. I've got to see Executive Decision. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. and at one point, one of the characters, right? Because it's like a bunch of army people talking yeah. about the yeah. plane. At one point, they have to make a big decision. An executive about, decision? They have to make a big decision about the plane, and the character says, Call the president. This is an executive decision. Fuck yeah. Uh, yeah. Fuck yeah. That yeah. that is like a That's the catnip, right? That there. I can That's see that. That's the ultimate film lover catnip is when they say <laughs> the title. Yeah, that that is true. And and I feel like I'm learning so much about you. Like it it makes so much more sense now why you love the Mission Impossible movies oh, because it's they're they're procedure porn. Pure procedure, yeah. It's procedure porn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like like I feel like like procedure porn is action movies and then rom-coms and like to do competency porn. Right. Like seeing a woman who's like ultra yeah. competent at her job. <laughs> She's so good. She it's also why I love all problems. I'm a huge fan of um like crazy movies like you like I'm not 
huge into realism, but I love Michael Mann, who's like sort mm-hmm. of an ultra realist, like getting right. all those nitty gritty details down. But uh, Michael Mann is another guy who's just like good procedure procedures porn. everywhere, man. Ah, oh, I love. I could watch Robert De Niro rob a bank in a Michael Mann movie every day of the week. Oh well, I love I love a good heist yeah. or like the the watching of the heisting, like the procedures of a right. heist. You know what movie is really good for that? Is um, have you ever seen the movie The Asphalt Jungle? I don't know if I have or not. It's an old noir movie. Yeah. It's it's like one of Marilyn Monroe's first roles. Oh, I haven't seen but, it. But but it's all about this jewel heist and their organizing of the heist and they right. depict the procedure of getting into the bank right. and there's like a box man, a safe cracker and sure. you, you see like his whole procedure for yeah, opening yeah, the safe. Yeah. It's like it's so it's I got to watch off. it now, yeah. No, I think you'd like it and then cuz it's an old movie, I think Sonia Sonia's probably already seen it it, but yeah it's like if you want to see like early early procedure movie yeah asphalt jungle that's like when we saw that um for the noir city or whatever yeah when we saw armored car robbery oh my god armored car robbery that was like the prototype to heat that movie is amazing armored car robbery was an interesting movie because i usually can't get doug to go to movies with me but i was like doug this movie it's like 70 minutes long yeah it's not long at all like just come see it with me and he saw the movie and he's like man it's like nothing can stop this guy except a plane (laughs) headed right for him like he was like he was going along five style yeah until he literally gets hit head on by a plane (laughs) (laughs) but that was he was invincible up to that point Yeah, um, it was a it was a really good one. Yeah, heist movies are, are fun. Oof, yeah, yeah. All right. How about you? What's your so love my bite? love bite or bites plural? After watching Fives, um, the opening music that he does in the movie is uh, composed by Felix Mendelssohn, and then I did use Mendelssohn as a plot point in my pitch. So, like Fibes, I am a lover of classical music, and I would like to recommend to our listeners that they check out the compositions of Felix Mendelssohn. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got your Beethovens and your Bach and your Brahms or whatever. Mendelssohn, romantic composer, really, like, some really great stuff. I would recommend listening to the Violin Concerto, sure. like I mentioned, um, also Mendelssohn has the Scottish symphony, which is also really good. I don't know much about Mendelssohn's organ works other than <laughs> the piece that Fibes played. So I can't recommend any of that, but if you like classical music or you want to like classical music, uh, Mendelssohn is a great composer. And then my other recommendation is actually a book or book series <laughs> you can listen to it on audio oh, okay that's all right <laughs> we have narrators now who will perform the book for you while you do other tasks um so this series the series is called the consortium series the first book is called polaris rising and then the one that i just read is called aurora blazing 
They are sci-fi romance novels. So you get your romance and you get your sci-fi in one package. Like, did you watch Star Wars and wish that you cut out all the other crap except Han and Leia bickering and then like working against each other, against their enemies? If that's what you wish Star Wars was, then these books are perfect because... The main characters are like women dealing in this sci-fi world. They are of like a prominent family in the universe. And in the first book, um, the female protagonist, she's on the run from mercenaries who Mm. are trying to get her back to her father. And she ends up in a prison cell with this badass named Locke, who's also being chased across the galaxy. And they form like an unlikely bond. And that's the first book. Um, You don't have to read these books in order. You can just start from whichever one. You're a crazy person. (laughs) This is not the first time you've recommended a book series on the podcast and recommended them out of order. Well, here's the thing. So you may not know this about romance novel series, but usually with the romance novel series where it's multiple couples, each book is a different couple. And so the way that Uh. they're marketed is they're part of a series. So if you're a reader of the series, you're motivated to read the next book in the series. But if you're a new reader, you can read any of the books just based on the couple description. Like, oh, like this sounds more interesting to me. And they like in the books, like they'll fill in the shading. Like if, if couples from the previous series appear, like they'll mention them and be like, oh, this is so-and-so. And then when you're reading the book, you can be like, oh, I'm curious about their romance. I'm going to go read it. So you don't, like with romance series, you don't always have to read them in order. So the first book is all about these two against the universe, fighting off mercenaries and stuff like that. It's, oh, it's so much fun. Like if you like sci-fi stuff, like it's got like a lot of great sci-fi world building, but like spoiler alert, there's also sex in it. Ew. (laughs) Ew, We don't like that. We just want to see virginal Luke Skywalker trains across the universe. (laughs) Maybe a little innocent kiss with his sister (laughs) just one sister kiss um but the book that i just read aurora blazing this one is the sister of the character of the previous book and she is trying to find her brother who's been kidnapped Mm -hmm. and then her love interest is the head of security for their family and he's also trying to find the brother and so they kind of like different reasons well no for the they're they're trying to find him for the same reason to save him but like you know like this guy he's like oh she's just like some space princess basically but no she's really a badass and so that at first they're fighting with each other but then they're working together to find the brother and it's like a mystery of like where did he go to and like how do they extract him i feel like these books would make an awesome video game sure like a like you know like mass effect has some like dating and love elements in it too where like part of the game is forming a relationship with one of the characters of your party i feel like if i were product managing the game 
based on these books, I would make it half dating sim where you have to like strengthen your relationship with your um, love interest and then the other half like co-op shooter yeah. because like there's like constantly scenes of them like shooting out of places and, and stuff like that and yeah. like great like good action scenes. So, Aurora Blazing and Polaris Rising from the Consortium series. I highly recommend it. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I think it's mm. a good, it's a good, like, if you were trying to trick your boyfriend into reading a romance novel, I feel like I might slide them this one. Yeah, I could probably be easily tricked into reading that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, 1971. We have definitely covered that year, uh, and I hope that we'll do more years in the future. Yeah, or more years in the past. Or more years in the past. Touche. Yeah. <laughs> All right, groovy dudes and gals. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.